0: Amen. You may be seated. And turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we are in the second chapter of the book of Acts. If you uh, don't have a Bible, please just lift up your hand, and we'll make sure that one is provided for you. Acts chapter 2, and we're going to start at verse 42. Read on down verse 46. Luke writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common." And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that you would help Harbin's church to be the kind of church you want it to be. I pray that you would help us to be a church that is devoted to the teaching of the apostles. Help us to be a, a church that is devoted to fellowship. Help us to be a church that is devoted to prayer. Father, I pray that you would unite us as a church where we have all things in common, that we would be bound together by your Spirit. Father, I pray that we would be a church that would image to the world what you are like by how we interact with one another, fellowship with one another, and treat one another. Father, I pray for this sermon that it would go forth with your power, that you would guide Steve, and he would hear from you, and that he would faithfully and accurately divide the word of truth. I pray that you would help us to receive that word with joy and gladness, for man shall not live by bread alone, but by this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Well,
1: it's a good morning. Good to see you. Either uh, we all missed the rapture, and uh, we're here this morning, and we have no reason to be here. Or we are right in knowing that no man knows the day, not even the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And instead, we are to be people who are always ready to go. doesn't matter what day. We're always to be ready to go because we're to be living lives that uh, always exemplify um, our Lord Jesus Christ in everything we do. It is good to see you this morning. We are going to conclude our Jesus Tribe series with this week's message and next week's. This is actually going to be a two-part message Two-part message on this passage of Scripture that um, Adima read for us this morning. And so as I think about the Jesus Tribe and how to close this, I want to take a l- real close look at the New Covenant family. Last week we talked about the New Covenant. We celebrated the Lord's Supper. We observed it together. And today I want us to look closely at how the New Covenant family of God, the church, is meant to function. The DNA, if you will, of the church. And guys, I don't have the clicker, so y'all are going to have to hang with me today. Pay close attention if you would. Jesus said... When someone asked him or someone mentioned to him that his mother and his brothers were outside waiting to speak to him, he said this, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, his followers, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so we are taught in the Scripture That those who are followers of Christ are part of a family, part of a brotherhood. We are taught that those who have placed their faith in Christ, who have called upon his name, are indeed, according to John 1.12, children of God and have been adopted into the heavenly family. The family of God is eternal. It will go on forever forever. These families that we have now here on earth, your children, your wife, your husband, these families we have now, moms, dads, are important, but they are temporal. They're temporal. The family of God is eternal. Now, I want to make sure we understand as we've sort of put a focus of importance, which I think rightly so, on the family of God, that you don't take that to mean that I think that The immediate nuclear families that we have here are unimportant. We are not to neglect our families in order to honor God's family. Actually, to neglect our family is to dishonor God's family. Because God loves to work within family units. We see all throughout the book of Acts, as we've been studying it, there's been household conversions. And God likes to work within the family unit. We saw in Deuteronomy 6 how God uses the family unit as sort of a a mini-church, if you will, within his people, within the Jesus tribe. And I believe wholeheartedly that the primary means that God uses to save children, to bring them into the kingdom, are the parents. And so the ministry of the family of God, the larger Jesus tribe, okay, the the ministry of the family of God informs and encompasses our immediate nuclear family ministry as well. Within the context of the family of God, our individual families become our primary ministry, our primary mission field to whom we know how to minister because we are in the church. We are in the family of God and through whom we see and savor God's familial love for us, for the church. So I want us to be thinking about the church now as we conclude the Jesus Tribe series I've got a prop this morning, and haven't done as good with that lately for the for the kids. But I do have a prop this morning, and I have something that I want the kids to try to guess what it is. Now, if you know what it is immediately because your parents have one or something, th- 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 don't say anything. Okay, thank you. Uh, ignore Mike uh, Andrew in the front row. Okay, if you don't know what this is, I would like for you to guess what it is. Okay. You, I'll let you tell everyone what it is in about two minutes, okay? Okay. Now, if you don't know what this is, I'll try to guess what it is and what its purpose is, okay? So, this is really for the children of D. Go ahead. Uh, home, dentistry. home dentistry? Yeah. I could see that. Just, yeah. Home, home dentistry, all right? Anybody else what this contraption is for? Now, now wait just one second. Just... I know you want to tell everybody, and I'm going to give you the chance in one minute. All right. Don't, Miss Mary, I'm going to tell you the same thing I'm telling Andrew up here. You can't tell everybody. (laughs) Swear. (laughs) Got to keep the little ones in check, and I got to keep Miss Mary in check, too. All right. All right, right in the back here. I'm sorry. (laughs) What do you think it is? Any idea? Any idea? What do you think? Did she tell you, Dad? All right, all right. Since, since so many people know what it is, we're going to go ahead and go there. You know, when you first look at this, though, you might be wondering, what, what is this? What is this thing here? Is it some sort of dental, home dental kit? Is it some sort of, a, you know, homework completion ex- extraction device that parents use to make sure their kids get their homework done? Some sort of medieval torture device? Who knows? Isaac's going, no! Yeah. All right, Andrew, for everyone to hear loudly, tell me what this is. An apple, kind of, it, kind of All right, it is an apple peeler, corer, slicer. All right, it's got three things that it does. Now, you may pretend like it's, you know, when I first saw it, it kind of looked like a gun of some sort. It shoots darts or something. You may pretend like it's a dental extraction thing. Don't go home and try it. Um, you may think it's something else, but it No matter what you think it is, no matter what you think its purpose is, it really only has those purposes. It is intended for apples and it's only meant to peel, core, and slice an apple. That's what it does, that's its function. So it doesn't really matter what you think it does, it matters what it was created to do. So I want to think along those lines when we think about the church today, because a lot of people have a lot of misconceptions today. It's what's the purpose of the church? Why does it here? Well, what is the church meant to do? What is it good at? Or does that really even matter what it's good at? What matters is what does the Bible say the church is to be doing? What's the DNA of the church? I have a, um, one of those, um, what do you call those, elliptical machines, and I used it for a while. But it, after a while, it became a really good towel rack and a place to hang clothes and stuff. Now, it really did well. It, it was great at that. You can hang several clothes across a little bar right there. But that's not what its purpose was. Its purpose was to be an exercise device to help me get fit. And so, when we think about the church, there may be a lot of things the church, when we think about the church in America, does even does well. But the question is, is that what they're supposed to be doing? I don't care about necessarily what we do well. I don't care about what we necessarily think the church should be doing. What I care about is what the Bible says about what the church is to be doing. What is the DNA of the church? So let's look at that this morning in this text. This is a very familiar passage, and I pray that the familiarity of the passage doesn't cause you not to hear what God has to say to us through it. In this passage, we see four things, four things that the early church was devoted to And then we read five outcomes of that devotion. So that's how I'm splitting up the sermon. I'm looking at the four things that the church was devoted to that we too should be devoted to. And then I'm going to look at the outcomes of that next week. Now the context here is this is right after Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And we read in the text right before this one that 3,000 people had just been saved. A lot of times when we look at this passage in, in Acts 2 Verses 42 through 47, and then look at Acts 4, the passage there at the end of Acts 4 that also talks about the church. We look at that and we think, well, that's really impossible for, for our church because we're, we're too big. We can't do that. This church had 3,000 people in it and were able to do these things. So we should be able to as well, as small as we are. It says they were devoted to things. There were four things here they were devoted to. This word devoted means a steadfast, single-minded faithfulness to a course of action they were they were persevering in this course of action it could also mean to diligently pursue something so so the image here would be like an athlete so let's take a, a famous athlete who's who's done uh amazing things so you go back to the last olympics and you had michael phelps who won what was it eight medals i can't remember how many it was but it broke all the records and he just seemed like a machine now Michael Phelps isn't doing as well now. I don't know if you pay attention to his career. I don't very much, but every now and then I'll read an article. He's like losing a lot of races these days because he lost his devotion, really. After the Olympics, he got a little distracted with all the Wheaties commercials and, and some other extracurricular activities that he shouldn't have been doing. And he, he lost his devotion, he lost his focus. But an athlete that's devoted to something is is pursuing something, and he's and maybe has a course of action. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. And so, the early church, there were four things here that's mentioned in Acts four two, verse forty two, that they did. What we are devoted to will become evident by our actions, and we'll talk about those actions next week. What we are devoted to will become evident by our actions, or what we say we're devoted to will be exposed. As hypocrisy based upon the way we look or the way we act. So if I, if I stand up here and say, I'm devoted to marathon running, you would laugh. I already saw a few grins come out there because you look at me, especially if I stand in this direction, and you say, you're not devoted to marathon running, my friend. You may say you're devoted to marathon running, but all the evidence points in another direction. And so it's great to read Acts 2.42 and say, yes. That's the church we are. But the question is, when when we look at us and we examine ourselves, and this, this text is to be like a mirror that we are to look at as a church and say, Is this really who we are? We need to ask ourselves, are these the things we are really devoted to? Is this who we really are? Now I've already preached this passage twice at Harbins. August of two thousand and eight, August of two thousand and nine. And maybe I shouldn't have let it go two years because this is a passage that we should be always on our mind. That we should have always on our mind. Who are we? What are we devoted to? Churches can become devoted to a lot of things. They can become devoted to certain events, certain programs. They can become devoted to numbers. They can become devoted to personalities, pastors. They can become devoted to reputations that they have in a community. They can even become devoted to some very good things. Now I want to say this carefully, like outreach, service, evangelism, ministry, I, things that are very good that we should be devoted that we should be doing. But the question is those things should be the outcome of these four devotions. And we can't get the cart before the horse. These things that we see here, these other things that I mentioned, like. Outreach, service, evangelism should be the fruit of our devotion to these four things. Now, I recently, every now and then I have an opportunity to talk to a, a person who's going into church planting. And uh, and give them my thoughts on church planting and my thoughts on, you know, okay, here's what you can do or could do or should do or shouldn't do or whatever else. Because they want to kind of pick your brain. and And I did the same thing when I... Planted this church. I talked to other church planters, and and I've joked for a long time. I'll write a book on how how, how not to plant a church because I've made so many mistakes, you know. So I can make I can do a great book of mistakes, and say so here you go. Um, but but one recent conversation in particular caught me because every time I tried to turn it to a discussion of spiritual matters, um, doctrine, or anything. He kept coming back to, What's, what are your marketing efforts? What are you doing to market your church? And I'm not sitting in judgment of that person because I was the exact same way. You know, because the concern is, what can we do to get people? What can we do to attract people? And, and so, as I listened to that person, I thought back in my own experience. And I remember Greg Tiefertiller and I, when we went to Anchor Church and we presented our request for them to support us, uh, in church planting, we had a really slick prospectus put together. It was, that's what it was called. I didn't know what a prospectus was, but Greg did. He said, we got to have a prospectus. So we had this nice, shiny prospectus. And it was on slick paper. And, I, and, and you can even ask Steve Hammock this. They were very impressed with our presentation. They were very impressed with our presentation. But Steve said, it wasn't your presentation that actually caused us to want to support you. It was... The heart that we saw in you guys for the ministry—it wasn't the presentation—and so I think back to how sometimes um, we we copied the business world in the church, and we think that we've got to have a, a have it all together like a prospectus and our vision statement, and our mission statement, and our core values. And we have those things here, but you know what? I think not that I want to get rid of our cool mission statement, which I think is pretty cool, and it, it's just the question is. Are we coming back to this text here? Is it driving us as a church? Because if not, tear this thing up. I could care less about the prospectus. Because this is not a business. This is not even a social organization. This is a church. And so we go to the Word of God. It is our prospectus. Acts two verse 42, is our prospectus. It is our mission statement. And so everything that we write in our covenants, in our documents, in our, our, our core values, all these things have to come back. And if they don't match up to this, then we need to do some examination. And, and I myself want to acknowledge that I need to do more of that, coming back and taking our church core values and saying, all right, are we really doing what the Bible says we are to do? Are we being who The Bible's called us to be. And do we need to make some changes? Do we need to be reforming? So let's look at these real quick here this morning. The first thing I want us to see is that the Jesus tribe, or the church, is uncompromisingly devoted to, number one, the primacy and authority of the gospel message of the Bible. The primacy and the authority of the gospel message of the Bible Acts 2, 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What is that? What is the apostles' teaching? It's the gospel. They were devoted to the eyewitness, firsthand, supernaturally enabled teachings of the apostles. We, too, have apostolic teaching. Okay? It's not me. It's this. We have apostolic teaching as well. The apostles, capital A apostles in the sense of an office in the church, no longer exist. These were men who had been witnesses to the resurrected Christ and had been supernaturally gifted and enabled to confirm and grant and, and to confirm their authority of the message of their teaching. And so we don't have that anymore in the sense that there's not apostles walking around with some sort of supernatural giftedness that confirms that they were witnesses of Jesus Christ, instead we have the apostles' teaching recorded for us in an infallible, inerrant word. The apostle, the apostles, the office of the apostles was vital to the birth of the church. Ephesians 2.19 So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we have it right here. We have the foundation. Uh, How firm a foundation is a song that we sing sometimes. And it refers to at least the first verse of that him refers to the Bible. How firm a foundation we have. This is the foundation laid by the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being himself the cornerstone. We have it here. This book, particularly the New Testament gospel message of which the whole Bible speaks, is the apostolic message, it is the apostles' teaching. Therefore, to be a church that is devoted to the apostles' teaching means that we are to be a scriptural church, a Bible believing church, a gospel centered church. That is what we must be devoted to quite simply. First Timothy four six says, If you put these things before the brothers, re- these things referring to these teachings, then you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. This means that teaching will be important. First Timothy four eleven says, Command and teach these things. And then in verse 13 it says, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Second Timothy 2.2 2 says, talk, again, Paul talking to Timothy, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This also means that preaching will be important. Second Timothy four, one through two. I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom to preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time is coming. The Time came this past weekend as well, and it will continue to come until Christ really returns. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This also means that we must be diligent. First Timothy four sixteen: Keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. Which also means we must stand firm in the doctrine. First uh, Titus one nine says. Referring to an elder, says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Our personal and corporate spiritual health depends upon this word being so a part of what we do that it saturates everything. 1 Peter 2, 2, like newborn infants long for pure spiritual milk, that you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This means, obviously, we must also be doers of the Word. It makes no sense to come here and preach the Word, and teach the Word, and hear the Word, and say we believe the Word, if we do not go out, as James said, and be doers of the Word. If we're not devoted to this Word, to this gospel message, to this teaching of the apostles, then we are not a church. Let me say that again. If we are not devoted to the apostles' teaching, which is this word, the Bible, then we are not a church. So that's what's going to be our first and primary thing, is that we're going to be devoted to this word. So if at any point in our church life we become strayed, then we are failing to be the type of church that Acts 2 calls us to be. I will preach, we will preach, others in here will preach, Others in here will teach, and we will teach this word. If we do nothing else, let us do that well. Please do not get offended. Please do not get offended. Or if you have been offended, then come talk to me about it and get over it. Please do not be offended if I tell you I cannot meet with you because I have to spend time in this word. Please do not get offended if I tell you I cannot be at a meeting... Or I cannot be at a certain activity because I have to spend more time in this word. If you want a busy pastor, you can find plenty of them. I'm making a new commitment in my life to try to cut out some busyness. I read a very, very convicting uh, comment from another pastor this weekend that talked about He said the word busy before before the title pastor should be as scandalous as the word adulterous before the word wife. Or embezzling before the word accountant. Because a busy pastor is not a studying pastor. And so please do not get offended. If I do not administrate well because I'm studying the word. Please, I will try and I will by God's grace grow in administration. Grow in other areas. But my job is primarily to feed the sheep. If I stop feeding you, fire me. If I stop feeding you, get rid of me. Please, for your own sake, get rid of me. If I don't plan well, pray for me. If I don't administrate well, pray for me. If I don't communicate well, pray for me. If I don't vision cast well, pray for me. But if I don't feed you the Word of God well, fear me. Can me. Get rid of me. My job is to be a shepherd that feeds the flock. And if I'm not doing that, then I have failed you. Totally. Push me out and find someone else. If I don't feed you well, I don't shepherd well. Fire me. This means that I and you must grow in discernment. I must grow in my discernment of the word and 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 how to how to do things in this church where it's being word saturated, and you too must be people who grow in discernment of the word. You are to be Bereans who hear the word and then then go back to the Bible and examine it for yourselves. I much prefer someone walking into my office or giving me a phone call or dropping me an email or putting a post on my wall that says. Brother, I need to talk to you about the passage of Scripture you preached this week because I have some thoughts, I have some concerns, I even have some questions. Ah, boy, I'll meet for that. Yes, let's go, let's sit, let's meet. I want to be corrected if I have messed up somehow. I want to talk through difficult text with you. I'll meet for that. But... Everything else, I'll do my best. And you can can pray for me. But When it comes to my job, it is to feed you. And that's what the church must be about. There are so many pastors. There are so many pastors that are so good at so many things. But they have dropped the ball on the main thing, which is this right here. And I'm scared that that's who I might become. So I want to tell you, please, for my own sake and for your sake, if I ever stop feeding you, can me. The Jesus tribe is devoted to apostolic biblical gospel truth. And go to my next point, guys. The Jesus tribe is also devoted to sharing life together with other believers in the unity of fellowship. Sharing life together with other believers in the unity of fellowship. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship. Fellowship here, this word is koinonia. You've probably heard it before. It's a very rich word. It has a lot of meaning, a lot of nuances. It could be translated partnership. It could be translated sharing. It could be translated partaking, participation, or even communion. It's a very, very rich word. For example, uh, Paul, refer, Paul uses the word in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, also in Romans 15, referring to contributing to the needs of others with a financial offering. So this word fellowship can mean sharing of your, of your stuff you have. So the con- contributing to the poor in the, of the saints of Jerusalem, Paul uses this word fellowship in Romans 15, 26. Also, it can just be referred to sharing in, in a very general way. Uh, do not ne- neglect to do good and share what you have for, the sacrifice, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, Hebrews 13, 16. In, in Philemon 6, he talks about sharing your faith, and he uses this word here, fellowship. It can also mean partnership. Philippians 1 9, uh, he talks about partnership in the gospel. You know, he's talking about others who, believers, who have partnered with him in his endeavor to spread the gospel. It most certainly, in this passage, is referring to a deep oneness and unity of the Spirit. It does encompass the idea of sharing, but also of love, of service, of caring for one another, of meeting one another's needs, and living life together. It's a relationship between individuals which involves a common interest and a mutual active participation in that interest and in each others in, in each other. A church devoted to fellowship first understands that fellowship begins with our union with Christ, our participation in Christ Fellowship with others is impossible without first being in fellowship with Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 9. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship, same word, koinonia, of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 1 John 1, 3. And then we'll jump down to verse 6 of 1 John 1. It says, that which you have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. There's koinonia in, in the body, fellowship with us as indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So fellowship within the body, this this uh, horizontal type fellowship, is absolutely um, is, um, dependent upon a vertical fellowship with the Father. 1 John 1, 6. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His Son cleanses us from all sin. So fellowship with our Father through the shed blood of Jesus Christ is essential before we can ever begin to talk about fellowship within the body. Therefore, in a biblical church, a regenerate membership is a must. In other words, we're not just going to let people join this church and shake your hand and say, okay, yeah, great. We have examination that you go through to enter our church. I'm sorry if that makes you uncomfortable. I believe it's because if we allow an unregenerate people to come into the church just because they can nod their head and say, yeah, okay, I like that, I like this, I don't like that, or whatever, just because they can sign a document. And we don't do, as elders, a proper examination to make sure people are saved. If we allow unregenerate people to come in and be, quote-unquote, members of the Jesus tribe, of the church, what that creates is a disunity in the church and there'll be a lack of fellowship in the church you see it all over the place i'm thankful and grateful that many biblical churches are coming back to much more of an examination process before people can join the church because we've been so consumed in america with our numbers that we just try to make it easy come on in brother sister the Bible doesn't make it that easy because it says, in order to have fellowship with one another, we have to be in fellowship with God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if we say we have fellowship while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Therefore, we take seriously regenerate church membership, it is vital. A church that believes in fellowship and sharing life together will take membership seriously. 2 Corinthians thirteen fourteen says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. That fellowship is the result of God's Holy Spirit residing within his people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit individually. 2 Corinthians refers to us as individually temples of the Holy Spirit. But 2 Corinthians 3 refers to the church in general. Our whole church body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2.1 says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, that word is fellowship. If there's any fellowship in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. That unity that we all so desire in the church, it's an outflow of there being a unity that we all possess the Holy Spirit. And if there's those in the church that have not, confess Jesus Christ as Lord and truly been regenerate, then it's always going to cause disunity of the church. So do you see these first two devotions? Do you see how they're connected? Christian fellowship cannot exist without the gospel. Members of a chamber of commerce may have a certain amount of common passion about business or whatever else. Members of a sports fan club may have a common passion about their their team or the sport Members of a sewing class may have a passion for needles and thread. Who knows? But Christian fellowship, likewise, is centered around a singular passion, a passion for Christ that comes through the gospel. And the gospel takes us into a level of sharing that is supernatural, that's superseded by all other forms of fellowship. That's why the church is different than a social club. Because we stand first united with Christ, and through Christ are united with our brothers and sisters. I heard it said by another pastor, and I agree 100%, that one of the greatest proofs that Christianity is true is that you can go halfway across the globe and meet someone that you've never met before from a totally different culture that speaks a totally different language and you begin to talk to them and share them and you instantly have a Christian bond and a Christian fellowship. It's like you've got brothers. It is. It's very real. You have brothers and sisters all over this planet. And to me, it's a tremendous proof because I can be a fan of a soccer team or a fan of a famous soccer team and go halfway across the globe and meet another fan from a famous soccer team. We may have, That's great, yeah, but there's nothing else beyond that. But you meet a brother, a true brother or sister in Christ, there's an instant bond and an instant fellowship. And if you get a chance to go on a short-term mission trip and really meet brothers and sisters in Christ from other places and other cultures, I really encourage you to do it. It'll strengthen your faith. So that means the internal church ministry of the church, the fellowship within the church body, is more important. It's more important than anything else that we might do that might try to get our minds focused outwardly. Second Corinthians six fourteen uses the word fellowship. Here's what it says. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership or fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, or fellowship has light with darkness? does this mean we don't minister to those outside the walls? No, but it does inform us how we minister to those outside these walls. It tells us what is most important. We will get, by the way, later, next week's message, we'll get to, to the importance of, of, a, of being a church that makes a difference outside these walls, but it comes as a fruit of our devotion to these things, to fellowship. Here's where so many churches get it flip backwards, they get the cart before the horse, is they think in order to be a good church, we've got to be an outward-focused church. And that may be great, and churches can accomplish a boatload of things on their own strength. And with money and with with good advertising, you can accomplish a lot out there. But the Bible flips it the other way around. First and primary are these things, and that is the fellowship within the body, within the, the brotherhood here, within this group. And therefore, if I see Cancer and pain and struggles here right now. My primary attention is going to be to get you the word that will heal the fellowship in the body before I ever begin to think about outside these walls. Because that's my job as a pastor. I don't go outside the gate, hope the sheep can survive on their own, and start whacking people upside the head and pulling them into the pen. My job as a pastor, I'm not saying that we aren't to go outside preach the gospel, share the gospel by all means, meet needs, serve people. Yes, I'll get to that next week. Please be patient. What I'm saying, though, is the primary marks of the church is to read this word, know this word, teach this word, feed each other this word, grow in fellowship with our Christ, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and through that, have a love that's so unbreakable that no silly, petty thing will ever come between the people of this church. Nothing. And if we can do that... By all means, that makes us a powerful witness to the world. It makes us a powerful entity that can go out and change the world. Why on earth do we want to go change the world when we have so much we need to change right here? Starts right here. These are the first four things. Don't. I'm just reading the Bible. Please. Please. I know our tendency. I know what culture we're in. I know the church culture of America today that puts a prime, a major focus on outreach and on going outside the walls. I understand that. I also understand the heart behind that. And I believe there is a right heart behind that. I just want to make sure we're going in the biblical order here. Because we'll see at the end of this text... There were people getting saved left and right every day. But that was happening because they were a healthy church. So we get it in the right order first. Oftentimes disunity is stirred up in the church when we actually try to get these things out of order. Or when we focus on... Even if we're not getting them out of order, but we're focusing on these relationships before we're focusing on this one. We've got to make sure that we are so in the word that that apostolic teaching and that our relationship with Jesus is so strong. That it absolutely forces us by the sheer power of the word of God to go out and to begin to build those bridges of love to our brothers and sisters in the body. But if we say, oh, man, we need more fellowship in the church. And hopefully by now you know we're not just talking about eating. Okay, Fellowship is not just eating. Eating can be a good way to have fellowship. But if we focus, oh, we just got to have more fellowship in the church. We got to do more things together. But we're neglecting the word. Again, we're out of order here. And I think that can stir up problems in the church. And of course, if there's people in the church that aren't even true believers, that will obviously stir up disunity in the church. So we examine ourselves. We look in the mirror. How are we doing this? Also, just a real quick thing about this, because this has been on my heart lately because of a couple of different reasons. We also are not called to be Lone Ranger Christians, friends. The Bible leaves no room for Lone Ranger Christians. The Bible speaks of brothers meeting together, stirring one another up to good works. The Bible speaks of fellowship. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. Facebook is not fellowship. It may feel like you've got 600 friends, but none of them are really there. That's, that's cyber, um, I don't know, confusion. Facebook is not fellowship. Blogs are not fellowship. We need brothers, we need sisters, we need shepherds, we need servants, we need people ministering to one another, people to whom we are ministering. That's vital. And if we practice a lone ranger Christianity, I believe a couple of things can happen. Number one, we have a, you can easily slip into false teaching because you don't have brothers and sisters there to correct you. Secondly, you easily slip into pride. Some of the most prideful people in the world are Lone Ranger Christians. Because they've already determined they don't need the rest of the church. Therefore, they don't need correction from the rest of the church. They don't need to be under an authority. They don't need to be under guidance and shepherding. And therefore, that leads to pride. And Satan will keep you there. He wants you there. Prayerfully, God will break you if you're there. Bring you into Fellowship. Ephesians four eleven, And he gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists, the shepherds and the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro. So we may no longer be children. So we may no longer be children. Lone Ranger Christians are children. No matter how mature they might think they are because they know a lot of this, Lone Ranger Christians are children. So we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness of deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, the whole body, a toe chopped off by itself, has no function. The whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. By the way, just real quick, this passage... Go back to the beginning, Ephesians 4, 11. And he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. What did I say earlier? The church was built upon the foundation of what? The prophets and the apostles. I believe those two specific offices in the church have ceased. Because we have the written word of God now. What's left? Shepherds, teachers, evangelists. I think Ephesians is one of the best books you can study if you want to have strong understanding of ecclesiology, the way the church is structured. Devoted to right teaching, devoted to fellowship, the word koinonia here is also a word that Paul uses to give us a picture of what happens at the Lord's table. Last week we celebrated communion in the Lord's Supper, which by the way I'll get to here in a minute as far as thinking that just a strong conviction in my heart that we don't do that often enough. 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, referring to the Lord's Supper, This cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? That word is fellowship, participation. This bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake. There's the fellowship again of the one bread. Which brings me to the next Verse in that we're studying here in our next point Which you can go ahead and bring up That is that the Jesus tribe is uncompromisingly devoted to Cross-centered, Christ-ordained worship Specifically here Luke mentions the breaking of bread The breaking of bread When he mentions the breaking of bread here He's referring to more than just eating What's meant here is the Lord's Supper I mean, let's face it If you're alive, you're devoted to eating, aren't you? That's not what he's talking about here He doesn't have to tell people, hey, be devoted to to eating some food. He says, be devoted to the breaking of bread. In other words, the Lord's Supper. Be devoted to Christ-ordained worship. The Lord's Supper, communion, even the word communion is based upon this word fellowship, was the centerpiece of the early Christian worship. And it needs to be more of a centerpiece in our worship today. We do not, we do need, I believe we do need to practice it more often. Why? Why? because of what it symbolizes. I've been convicted before, but even more so as I contemplate this passage, that the Lord's Supper really needs to be more of a regular part of what we do here. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five says, In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in re- remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death Until he comes. The Lord's Supper was was designed to be a visible, tangible, symbolic demonstration of the fellowship we have with Christ. Identifying us with Christ. Identifying us with his finished work on the cross. His atoning, um, propitiatory work that he did at Calvary. We are to observe it regularly because he ordained it. Now there's two ordinances in the church. So I'm going to throw both of them in here. We are to be baptizing and we are to be practicing the lord's supper on a regular basis we are to do both because both keep our eyes focused on the cross both keep our eyes focused on jesus that's the only two ordinances in the church foot washing is not an ordinance i don't believe okay there's some people who think it is lord's supper communion jesus didn't ordain music mark i'm sorry i think it's a helpful thing so long as it's cross-centered but cross-centered, Christ-ordained worship is primarily the ordinances, and in this case, the breaking of bread. Ephesians 2:14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came... And preached peace to you who are far off, and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access to one Spirit and to one Father. This Lord's Supper and this baptism are symbols of unity in Christ through his finished work on the cross, and therefore it is to be something we practice regularly. Baptism calls for a submitting of oneself to God, appealing for a clean conscience. Going under the waters and thus symbolizing the judgment we all deserve that fell on Christ instead of us. And thus we are crucified with him, buried with him, and then rising up out of the waters. Symbolizing that he, he has victory over death and over sin. And we have a new life, a resurrected life with him. And communion calls us for a self-examining, confessional purging of our sin as we acknowledge our unity together in Christ. That he spilt his blood on our behalf And thus inaugurated a new covenant in which we, through Christ, have been forgiven of our sins and counted righteous. Christ-centered, cross-centered worship. And so everything else we do, songs, prayers, anything else we do that's part of our worship videos, is to be Christ-centered, cross-centered. You see what's most important for the church? This is God's vision statement for the local church. You don't have to read a... Purpose-driven model, family-driven model, service-driven model, community-driven model, worship-driven model. Whatever, whatever you want to drive, drive it. Drive it off a cliff for all I care. I want to be Bible-driven. Let's be driven by Acts 2, 42. Here Luke says that the church was devoted, driven to apostolic Bible teaching, genuine fellowship within the body, cross-centered, Christ-ordained worship. And finally, number four, you can bring it up. A consistent and concerted coming before God in prayer. A consistent and concerted coming before God in prayer. Acts two forty two And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. Public prayers. Corporate prayers. The definite article before the word prayers here it seems to indicate that there was a certain amount of formality to this. That they had times that they were going to make sure they prayed. I think in our freedom of our free worship that we enjoy, we sometimes neglect the importance of some sort of more structured things. And structure can be very important. Structured prayer times can be very important. Public prayer, corporate prayer is sadly neglected in the church today. And we are no exception. But it's so sweet when we actually do it. A little over a month ago, we had, what, 10, 12 men here in a circle Praying. We didn't just shoot the breeze. We prayed for three straight hours. Okay, yesterday, three of us were able to come and we prayed. Now we did talk a little bit yesterday. We didn't pray as much as we did the week, the time before. But prayer, gathering together, just to pray individually. We should be praying. We should be devoted to be praying. We should take those slips, put prayer requests on them, take prayer requests out, be praying. For one another. Be praying for the church. Be praying for me, for goodness sakes. Be praying for for each other. You know needs that are in this church. But corporately, we should be coming and pouring out our hearts to God. And that makes us uncomfortable, I think, partially due to our hyper-individualized culture that we live in. I'm going to do things my way. I don't feel comfortable praying like that. I don't care. I don't feel comfortable at prayer meetings. I'll just be honest with you. It's kind of awkward sometimes. You remember the... Especially when you're in college and you have the prayer meetings and you'd all stand together and hold hands. And then they start going long and you kinda, your palms are getting sweaty. You think, should I, should I, what should I do here? Should I wipe my palm off? And, and then there was all the, always the obligatory squeeze at the end of the prayer, you know? You, know, all, there's, you know. And it's just kind of this awkward thing, you know. I don't care. It's awkward because we're sinners. It's not awkward because of prayer. Prayer is commanded. We're just sinners. We struggle with it because we're these hyper-individualized Americans who struggle with getting together and praying. 2, Corinthians 7, I mean 2 Chronicles 7, 14, one of my favorite verses. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, don't fool yourself. If you're here today, you are a sinner and you still have plenty of wicked ways that God is working out of you. If you're a Christian, you're being sanctified. You've got wicked ways, so do I. Seek our face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Do we believe what Jesus said when he says in Matthew 18, Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. This text is particularly connected to dealing with struggles in the church, Church discipline. John 14, 13. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Matthew 7, 7. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it will be opened to you. If we're Bible people and we're in the Word, we're going to know what God wants. And we're going to be praying for the things God wants. And if we have that fellowship with Christ and that fellowship with one another, we're going to know how to pray for one another. And our prayers are going to be more right. And I guarantee you we'll experience more answered prayers. Do we really embrace the vital role that prayer plays in the church? James 5.13 If any among you is suffering, let him pray. If anyone cheerful, let him sing praise. If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Do we really do that? We don't. We don't. I cannot remember the last time someone called me and said, other than a major hospital issue, which happens every now and then, other than that, I just don't think we pray over each other the way we should. Ephesians 6.18, Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayers and supplication, to that end be alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. I know how bad I struggle with prayer. And so I know that there's many people in here who struggle. You have your list of your own concerns that you're praying about for your own home and your home family, which you should be praying about. But this says be praying at all times for the saints. These are the things we seek after, brothers. These are the things we're to be devoted to. Apostolic, biblical, gospel teaching, preaching, fellowship with God and with one another, worship that is genuine, cross-centered, Christ-ordained, and prayer. And it all points to Jesus. We pray for Christ to do a work in us and in our church. We trust in Jesus that we are asking, and as, as, as His promise says, and that we are receiving. We fellowship with Christ. We worship that is focused on Christ. We fellowship with one another through the power of Christ. We teach and preach the cross of Christ. This is not a social club. This is a church. This is the bride of Christ. This is the family of God. This is the Jesus tribe. And then the other things come. So we've only been on one verse so far. I've taken 45 minutes on one verse. Then everything else comes. It says in verse 43, and we'll we'll study these next week. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs are being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had everything in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes and receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with all people. All people. That's outside of the church walls as well. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So all the other things that you may be concerned about this morning, well, I think the church should be about this, or be about this, or be about this. That stuff will be addressed. But let us primarily focus on these four things. Let's be devoted to these four things. So as a pastor, I'm going to tell you, as a pastor, I am putting these four things on my wall. And I'm going to say, are we doing these four things? And if we're not doing these four things, then I'm... I'm not going to worry about any new programs, any new initiatives, or anything else until I see that we're doing these four things. And if we do start new things, it'll be based upon these four things. Because if we're not doing those four things and we get to doing a bunch of other stuff, I'm afraid our Lord Jesus Christ will come to us and say exactly what he said to Martha. Harbins, Harbins, you are busy and distracted by many things, but only one thing is needed. Come sit at my feet. Worship me. Be devoted to my teaching. Pray to me. Love one another. Come sit at the feet of Christ. So, okay, I know it was a little dramatic. But we're going to have things we do at the church. Boy, I'm excited about what God's got in store for Harbin's. But, but, let us make sure that anything we put out of this church, mission statements, covenants, whatever else, that it's being measured by Acts 2, verse 42. Let's make sure it's being measured by that before we do anything. Let's bow our heads and let's pray and let's close with a, with a song and with a time of response. Use those blue slips. Let's be praying. Let's respond to the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You are... You are amazing. Your name is to be hallowed. I've just I, I just been concentrating on, on that, that truth, Father, that we can call you that. It blows me away that we can call you Father. And the only reason I can call you Father, God, is because Jesus has saved me. And therefore, your love for your own child, for, for, for Jesus... Has now being poured out upon me. And that my standing no longer is a rebel and an outcast and an enemy. Instead, I have been adopted into the family. I'm a brother with Jesus and I call you Father. Oh Lord, if there's anyone here, Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't have that, a relationship with you, through Christ, where they have turned, and repented of sin, and confessed sin, and trusted in the finished work of Christ on the cross alone, then then, then everything else we've said today can't be accomplished. They can't be part of this Jesus tribe. So God, I pray, Lord, because I know in a church our size, there are some people here that aren't saved. It's just the truth. So God, I pray, Lord, that um, that you would just move in hearts and help us really think about the fact that your Father and your name is to be hallowed. Lord, we pray that your kingdom come, your will be done, meaning we want you to rule. God, rule, harbends. This is not pastor-led church. This needs to be a Jesus-led church. So Rule. Rule. Be king over Harbin's. Make your will come to pass at Harbin's. Not our will, but yours be done. Let us all say that. Whatever hang-up, whatever frustration we have, God, and I have my own, with my own church that I'm a part of, I have frustrations. but Whatever hang-ups we have, let us be like Jesus and say, not my will, yours be done, even if my frustrations never get dealt with. Because it's not my church. Oh God, fix our hearts. Please, Father, fix our hearts. Make us devoted to the right things. Please. Make us devoted to the right things. So that we can be the Jesus tribe. So we can image you. To a lost world. Oh God, I'm so grieved at the damage that was done to the church by this fool who made all this hubbub about the end of the world. Because your body, your bride has been ridiculed. Oh God, don't let us add any ridicule to that by the way we act about church. Because one man proclaiming the end of the world is as equal a sin in your eyes as one man with a petty frustration in the church that hasn't been dealt with in a biblical, God-honoring, Christ-centered way. Don't let us cast stones at Harold Camping when we've got gigantic logs in our eyes. Forgive us of our sin. Make us a church. Make us a fellowship of believers that overcomes, oh, our differences. Oh, Lord, I thank you for the different people in this room. God, you have sent us quite a mixture. I'll be honest with you, Lord. we got a mixture here of people from different backgrounds different experiences, different personalities. Oh, my. Sometimes I wish we just had a bunch of clones, but, Lord, how thankful I am that we don't (laughs) because it stretches us to love. And we can't love in our own ability the way you want us to love in the church. Therefore, we have to have union with Christ, and therefore it has to be his love through us. (laughs) And therefore, we're closer to you through the whole process. (laughs) So, Lord... Praise your holy name for who you've brought to Harbin's and what you're doing here. And Lord, for who you, in your sovereign design, decide to take away at whatever time. Because it's not our church. It's yours. Jesus, I thank you for, (laughs) I know this sounds crazy, Lord. I thank you for the media miscues and my accidental open mic when I was correcting my daughter during the video. (laughs) Because I think before this message, I would have been so mad about those things. But the church isn't about a slick program. So God, in your sovereignty, Your will be done. Let the speakers blow. Let the sound system crash. Let the computer get a virus. And we're going to keep on worshiping you. Let the strings on the guitars break. Let our voices go hoarse. We're going to worship you. Forgive us of our sin. Of our self-centeredness. Forgive me of my self-centeredness. Forgive me of my Woe is me, pity parties that I've thrown in the corner of the pasture instead of being out in the field with the sheep. Forgive me, Lord. Here are songs. This song we sing is called Give Us Clean Hands. That's what we need, Lord. Give us clean hands so we can be a church that can go about your business without messing things up. So, Lord, now we stand and we sing this to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom we have fellowship, we pray. Amen. Please stand and sing, if you would, as Mark leads us.